0: Welcome to the Policy Options Podcast. I'm Maddie Haslam. I heard a saying recently that the best indicator of your health is your tax return. This expression will come as no surprise to experts in the public health world. It speaks to a widely acknowledged truth that a person's income and health are closely linked. Those living in poverty are far more susceptible to harmful health conditions, from stress to unstable housing or food lacking nutritional value. Social assistance is meant to counteract these inequities. But what happens if the programs that are supposed to be protecting the economically insecure aren't working? My guest today has been studying exactly that. Arjaman Siddiqui is an associate professor at the University of Toronto's Dalla Lana School of Public Health and Canada Research Chair in Population Health Equity. She came on the podcast to talk about the results of her new study on social assistance and health. The results have just been submitted to Ontario's Ministry of Community and Social Services and Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care. Here's our conversation. Arjuman, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So to begin, I'm wondering if you could tell me a bit about your research interests.
1: Sure. Um, My research interests are principally about social inequities. And I am interested in sort of three facets of that. I'm interested in documenting the extent of social inequities, both in health and in other outcomes related to well-being. I'm interested in understanding the causes of those inequities, and I'm interested in understanding uh, the consequences and the interventions that we can use to mitigate and, and hopefully sort of get rid of the inequities entirely.
0: I want to talk about this concept of social determinants of health. I think it's something that will be familiar to some, but not everyone. So I'm wondering if you can give us a bit of a primer on the subject. Sure. Um, so in epidemiology, which is the field that I trained in,
1: we often study the what determines health, the causes of health, and sometimes those are called the determinants of health. So social determinants of health are things like your income, your wealth level, your race, your gender. These are the social and economic factors that identify you in society, that predict where in society you fall in terms of your status and your access to material resources. And these factors are, are sort of critical for health because they predict and facilitate whether or not you'll have harmful health exposures or, uh, protective health exposures. So people with higher status in society, people with social determinants that lead to higher status seem to have less exposure to things like stress, things like the constraints of life that lead us to not eat well and to not exercise, less exposure to things like uh, environments that encourage smoking and so on and so forth. And so what ends up happening is that the social determinants of health are almost what we call fundamental or root causes of health that sort of set off a cascade of other exposures that lead to um, different health outcomes. And so um, they seem to be the most sort of predictive of a wide range of exposures, a wide range of health outcomes. And so we sort of think of them as not equal to other determinants of health, but in fact sort of the primary sources of what causes our health.
0: And in your recent Policy Options article, you discussed the study you've just conducted for the government of Ontario, and it looks at the health impact of social assistance uh, in Canada, the United States, and also the UK. What exactly did you set out to find with that study?
1: So when we started that study, we wanted to know whether social assistance policies in these societies we're actually improving the health of low income, income insecure uh, people in those societies. So going back to the social determinants of health, one thing that we've learned is that income is absolutely critical for our health. So it's a critical resource, it determines our status, it's, it's sort of a key material resource. And so poor people tend to be sicker, they tend to die earlier. And income assistance policies like social assistance, in theory, we think should be improving or giving a boost to the health of the income insecure because it provides more income for them. So we expect that when you have a social assistance policy in a society, um, that it will boost the health of the poor. So in other words, if you have people who are poor and are not on social assistance versus people who are poor on social assistance, we expect that the ones on social assistance should be doing better in health terms. And so we set out to find out whether that's actually the case. So we have very little evidence to actually test that proposition. It seems like it would be sort of straightforward and there should be no uh, two ways about it and yet we didn't really have any scientific evidence to uh, hang our hats on to tell us whether it, these social assistance programs are actually succeeding in doing that.
0: Mm, right. And so what were the results? The results were quite startling. Um,
1: they demonstrated that social assistance policies are not improving the health of the uh, poorest members of society across three three large societies, three societies that are uh, that include Canada and, and its peer nations. And when I say it's startling, that's not because we didn't have any findings that would suggest that. In fact, there were a few studies that had been conducted that tried to ask this question or a related question at least. Part of the problem was none of that evidence was really from Canada uh, or very little of it. And the other problem was that the studies had not really um, taken account of the methods that best best enable us to answer that question, that best enable us to compare what the effect of social assistance is sort of controlling or accounting for all other things that affect health. So those studies tended to be ones where they compared people on social assistance to people who were really quite different than uh, um, the people who would need or require social assistance. So it was just really difficult to make heads or tails of whether the difference in health was was due to social assistance or not. So those studies sort of suggested also that social assistance was not helping. And our thought was that if we do uh, use the methods that are available now in order to make the best sort of case for, for this question, in order to best isolate the effect of social assistance that we might find something different because theoretically you would anticipate that to be the case and instead we found very much the same thing as some of those preliminary studies and so in all three societies people on social assistance were doing either no better and in some cases worse than sort of similar people not on social assistance. So the finding was not that people on social assistance are doing worse than the general public. That's not news. The fact that they're doing worse than middle class people or upper upper class people, that's not news. What is news, I think, is that they're doing worse or it seems that they're doing worse than similar people not on social assistance.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is startling. I'm wondering how your findings, at least in a North American context, relate or could relate to cuts to income support. We actually think that's the
1: primary reason or at least one of a handful of primary reasons that social assistance isn't working for the poor. So if you think about the available science on income, on social assistance, on the determinants of health and the social determinants of health, there is nothing in the science that would suggest to us that there's any harm that should come of giving additional boosts in income to poor people. And so the question is, when you are supposedly giving a boost, why isn't it working? And we think that cuts to to social assistance may be a big part of this in the sense that it may very well be that the amount of social assistance that people receive is simply not enough to meet the demands of daily life in this day and age. And we know that since the mid-1990s, there have been huge cuts to social assistance. In fact, in another study that I conducted with colleagues at Stanford and Harvard, we found that in the United States, when social assistance, their welfare, uh, as it's called, was cut in the mid-1990s under the Clinton administration, you had a decline in the health of particularly low income single moms who were very likely to be people who required social assistance. And so when those reforms came in in the U.S., you had cuts to welfare. You had some other sort of provisions that are put in. It really harmed the health of some of the most vulnerable people in our society. And so certainly we think income assistance cuts and the inadequacy of social assistance is a big deal and maybe a big reason for our finding. We think, though, there might be other sort of related issues.
0: Right. And one of those issues could be precarious work. So another feature
1: of social assistance in Canada and in peer societies like the United States is the mandate for people on social assistance to be working. It's less stringent in Canada than the U.S., um, but our sense is that because there is this requirement, that actually creates exposure to another social determinant of health, which is your job conditions. And that at the low income level, you would be exposed to extremely precarious job conditions. And what we've learned in other uh, areas of science in this field is that precarious work is actually more damaging in some cases than is no work at all. And so the combination of very little additional income received from social assistance and additional exposure to precarious work may... uh, Make things quite difficult and and help to explain our results.
0: Mm-hmm. And how do discussions about basic income and minimum wage factor into this?
1: Well, certainly, um, these are strategies boosting the incomes of the poorest members of our society. And so our study doesn't directly provide any evidence on either of those strategies, but they are additional strategies to help the poor. And so if it's true that the results we got reflect the fact that social assistance is inadequate, basic income and minimum wage policies may be strategies that work better if they are strategies that boost the incomes uh, of the poor more than traditional social assistance, and if they don't come with negative exposures like precarious work my sense of the literature, the broader literature on basic income and on minimum wage is that these may be worthwhile strategies, though may also be incomplete. So you might anticipate that basic income, for example, is not going to be the be-all and end-all, partly because, for example, the Ontario basic income pilot still doesn't get us back to the social assistance levels before the mid-1990s cuts. So it's entirely possible that you still wouldn't see a big health boost because the income is still wholly inadequate. In the case of minimum wage, that may also be the case. It's a wonderful thing to boost minimum wage, but if the maximum wages, so to speak, the inequality and the cost of living are outpacing what the modest increase in minimum wage provides, you may still find similarly sort of inadequate boosts to the health of, of the income insecure. So on the one hand, our study is related to a conversation, a broader conversation about policy solutions, and certainly basic income and minimum, minimum wage are the ones that appear the most in the literature right now and and the most in the public discourse and are sort of, I think, front and center on the minds of policymakers. On the other hand, I, I worry that they are not adequate, that they're not bold enough to really do what needs to be done, which is to address the huge inequality, the huge deficit. That poorer people find themselves in as a result of growing inequality and growing cost of living and just the sort of burdens of everyday life that are nearly impossible to meet at the um, income levels that they find themselves in.
0: So what kind of policy solutions do you recommend here?
1: My sense is that there are a couple of policies in the United States that deserve a lot of consideration. And I should say that both of these policies have been forwarded by two uh, incredible economists, uh, William Darity Jr. at Duke University and Derek Hamilton, who's at the New School uh, in New York. So they've been proposing a couple of policy solutions to address the large inequities, even larger uh, than we have in Canada, um, that you find in the U.S. and particularly the racial inequities in in health and well-being and in income and other resources. Number one is a a job guarantee. And the job guarantee essentially in their minds is a way to both boost the incomes of uh, the poor as well as provide them with decent job conditions. And the idea is that the government would actually help to create sort of a network of employment opportunities to the general public, and particularly to low income individuals. And the sense is that if instead of providing just social assistance, which I don't think they think should be abolished, it's still required for people who don't uh, have the ability to work. But if you do, And you're looking for work, their sense is you should be able to get work. And we shouldn't punish you for not being able to find a job. And you shouldn't be punished by um, poor job conditions if you are in the low education category and low income category. And what uh, these two economists think may be the outcome of this first is that before you even get to social assistance, it would stabilize and grow the wages, the market wages of the poor meaning that instead of on the back end, compensating for low wages and bad jobs, essentially, you essentially create good jobs for low income people. And they think the other effect that would have is if you don't go into a job that's part of this job guarantee, other sectors would have to start competing with a program that's providing adequate wages and good job conditions and so on, so that in effect, it also operates as a union of sorts. So they're even more jazzed about the job guarantee than they are about basic income.
0: Hmm, Okay, and what's the other policy suggestion? The
1: other that they've um, been considering is something that they refer to as baby bonds. And this is a policy that is meant to address not just income um, inadequacy, but wealth inadequacy. So their contention is that income poverty is really just the tip of the iceberg and that it's wealth poverty that we really need to be um, targeting. And, and they they have done studies that have found that if you look at the main source of economic inequality, it tends to be wealth inequality and it tends to be wealth differences that accrue from what they call intergenerational transfers, meaning The rich get richer not just because they earn more, but because they are receiving gifts and and inheritances from previous generations who had accumulated money, whereas that's not something that poor people can do. So over generations, poor people tend to stay poor while the rich get richer because they have this massive transfer of wealth across generations that pays for educations, that provides down payments for homes and so on and so forth. So their sense is that we can't really address inequality by only addressing income inequality and by only addressing what people have in a single generation because the problem accumulates over generations. And so these baby bonds would be a government program to provide a sort of seed of wealth for, new, for babies who are born And that seed accumulates over their lifetime. And that's sort of the key is that um, wealth accumulates over lifetimes and, and several lifetimes. And so it allows them to accumulate wealth and then as adults to have a pot of money in order to be able to do some of the things that wealthy people do, like pay for educations and down payments and so on.
0: Just to finish off here, we'll return to a related note on healthcare. That the federal government has just announced it will release the blueprint for its national pharmacare plan next spring. I'm wondering what you're hoping to see from that plan.
1: My sense is that uh, I hope to see a very generous universal pharmacare program, um, because I think that's just basically uh, uh, what we should be doing in society. That. Uh, aside from what the effects are, that if we want to be a just society, it doesn't make any sense to me that we would have differences in access to medicines in our society. So as a fundamental sort of starting point, I think that's the case. If you ask me, will that improve health? I think there's several ways in which it might. One is obviously, if you have more access to medicines, there's a good chance that you could be less sick. Once you get sick, you could die uh, later than if you didn't have access to those meds. There's the likelihood that this will result in less stress and less of your income going to meds and therefore free it up for other things um, besides something that we should be providing as society. But I don't know the answer to what effect It would have on health outcomes in the short and the long run. That's something that I think would require evaluation. On the one hand, what we've learned in the social determinants of health literature is that the things that make us sick in the first place tend to be our conditions of everyday life, as I sort of mentioned at the front end of the podcast. Things like uh, our, our income, our housing conditions, and so on and so forth that tends to be what determines whether we get sick or not and how sick we get in the first place and so policies that address those social determinants I think is what we think would show up in a large way in terms of health inequalities but on the other hand of course these could be important again in addressing illness and so on and and I come back to the original point, which is that just as a matter of justice, it's it's hard to comprehend that we would not do this.
0: Great. Arjuman, thank you very much for your time today. It's been great speaking with you. Thank you, Mehdi. I really appreciate it. That was Arjaman Siddiqui, Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Dalla Lana School of Public Health and Canada Research Chair in Population Health Equity. The Policy Options article she co-wrote is called Social Assistance is Not Improving Health. You can find it on our website. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at IRPP or find us on Facebook or LinkedIn. And you can also send us an email at policyoptions@irpp.org. at I'm Maddie Haslam. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Policy Options Podcast. We'll see you soon.